0: I would like to introduce.
1: Howdy, folks. My name is Matthew Dvorak, and welcome to the Chivo Effect, part of the Uplift United Podcast Network. Every week, I'll bring you the biggest stories in sports and break them down, and we are starting with Dak Prescott this week, baby. He signed the contract. He is getting that money. Ian Rappaport reported on Monday that the Dak Prescott and the Dallas Cowboys had agreed to a four-year, $160 million deal to keep him in Dallas. Uh, the deal has a maximum value of $164 million. That will include $126 million in guaranteed money, which is a record. Uh, it also includes two key details, which is a no-trade clause, which you bet expected to happen in this, and a no-tag provision, which means they can't tag him again ever. Ever, ever, ever. Dallas Cowboys can never tag Dak Prescott again. Now, this deal averages to about $42 million a year over the first three seasons, with $75 million in the first season. That's going to also include a $66 million signing bonus, which is also a record. That's the biggest signing bonus in NFL history. My first reaction to this was fuck the cap, right? $75 million in the first season especially when the NFL just came out last week and announced that there's a $182.5 million is going to be the cap this year. It fell a little bit. We knew this was going to happen, obviously, due to all the L's and the losses everybody had taken financially due to COVID. Everybody in all sports across all walks of life felt it, so they weren't the only ones. So you hear $75 million he's getting in the first year with a $182 million cap, and you're like, that's fucking half. That's that's damn near half it's like 43 40 percent almost so magically somehow he's only taking a 22 million dollar cap hit next year if they had tagged him y'all he'd be pushing about 38 39 almost 40 anyways probably about 37 i think it would sit so they're shaving 17 million off of that essentially to go back towards the team he's only taking a 22 million dollar cap hit next year and it's the way jerry converts it you know he has this clause in there that a lot of the cowboys have that they signed recently um that basically allows the nfl and the nfl the team to convert any amount of the salary into signing bonus at any given time so it's not like hey we're just not going to pay you haha it's hey for our sake on our end we reserve the right to take any of this salary for a year turn it into a one lump sum sign so the player still gets their same money Works way better for the team. I imagine Jerry will do some wizarding over the next several years to keep that down to a manageable level. Really won't be that bad because the cap is supposedly rising. We'll get to that here in a second. I also look back and ask myself, Dallas and the world at large, how did we even get here? This has been quite a bit of dramatic flair and, quite frankly, some bullshit going on as well to get to this point. So... This has been ongoing since the 2019 offseason. Two years we've been trying to get this shit done. It was reported around week one in 2019, you know, right a little before, right after, that talks were on. And then shortly after that, Jerry Jones came out and pretty much said that a deal was almost done. It was nearing it. They were almost at the finish line. Then you heard nothing. Week after week, game after game, you heard nothing. No, no news, no signing definitely happened, nothing. And now this was back when Dax had one year left on his rookie deal. And you know the drama snowballed and the speculation kept mounting. The media was going everywhere with it. There were reports that came out that the disagreements were over the per year number. Jerry, you know, wanted to keep it at about $32, 35000000 a year. Dak wanted a little more than that. Uh, another thing was that the Cowboys wanted five years on a contract, whereas Dak only wanted four. Now, the reason he only wanted four is the TV contracts are going to come around again here a few years. And what he wanted to do is be right in position as prime a time as possible for when that new money comes in and that salary cap skyrockets and inflates again, that he can go in for another deal. So he's getting paid right now market value for the quarterback was going to be 40 a year. It was I, it was what he was going to have to get to stay with this team, but pretty much go anywhere see what he's going to command. So what he's hoping for with that four-year contract is he's betting, by the time this deal is done, I'll be 31. I'll still be hopefully in my prime making something happen and in a position to get another payday. So when that $40 million a year is going to turn into maybe 60 or more, possibly as the cap goes up and everything, I'll be in line for another one of those contracts. So on and on, back and forth we went. You you kept hearing this. You kept hearing that. The only thing I didn't ever hear that no one ever heard was we have a deal. It just wasn't wasn't looking like it was going to happen. And come around time for the 2020 season, his rookie deal is up, so they would have to tag him. So more negotiations, more this, more that. So what do we end up doing? We tag him for about $31 million. So how does that work out for us as Cowboys? Uh, for the first four games, he was lighting it the fuck up. He was in everyone's face doing everything. He threw for 266 for the first game, so about probably what you little below average or average or do you expect to have Dak Prescott. But then he ripped off games of 450 yards, 472 yards, and 502 yards in consecutive weeks. Bam, bam, bam. And he threw one, four, and three touchdowns in those games. He had broken the mark for the most passing yards in the first four games of a season in the Super Bowl era with 1690, 1,690 yards. Uh, The offense was about the only thing keeping it competitive. They were 2-2 and at that point, about the only thing keeping them competitive as the defense ranked near the bottom the majority of the year. They were not good. That defense is a whole different story. We could have a whole different day on, but they were not good so dak is doing herculean things left and right trying to keep this team afloat and he's doing literally everything he can then of course the worst case scenario happens for this exact situation the exact thing you know it's doomsday protocol the thing you want to avoid happening that you always cite as is going to happen for why you want the contract and the security versus the tag Against the Giants in week five, he suffered a gruesome season-ending ankle injury, which is a compound fracture. So for layman's folks like myself who had to learn it the hard way, that means the bone pokes out through the skin. Looks gnarly, doesn't look good. I remember that game. I was at my parents. I was watching it. I talked about it here on the podcast. He gets tackled, and the guy kind of rolls on him a little bit, and you see the angle of his foot, and you're like, that's not right. And even Dak looks down, and he's like, yo, this ain't right. And of course, strange come on, AirCast. Uh, pretty rough scene. Dude was in tears. I really felt for the man over that one. His season was obviously over, and it left many of us wondering. You know what would happen next in this whole thing? How does that affect us? Has Dak lost any type of leverage that he's had in this whole deal? Because obviously, he got you know he's broke his fucking ankle out there. Would they try to pay him even less now, citing this injury? Would? They let him right on the tag one more year after surgery as a sort of prove-it type situation. Like, hey, you were lighting it up, but do it one more time. Prove me to you can. Prove me that ankle is still good. I kind of thought this is what they would do. I thought personally they would tag him this year and then he would leave and not come back. <clears throat> and it's a situation you absolutely hate to see. You hate to see it happen in general in football, but you definitely hate to see it happen to Dak Prescott. You know, he has been a model guy. He's been a class act this whole time and a real leader to this team. Obviously, not just the leader of the offense, a leader of the team in general, kind of of this organization. It very, very much felt like Earl Thomas in 2018. Earl Thomas, of course, was trying to get a contract extension with the Seahawks. Uh, they weren't budging because he still had a year left. He went and said, it feels very reminiscent of Earl Thomas in 2018. You know, he wanted that contract extension with the Seahawks. He was on his last year of his deal. They said, no, we're going to let it go. Um not that they wouldn't necessarily resign him, but we're not going to just extend to you right now. He again wanted the financial security that came with it, you know, this, that, and a third. So he was going to hold out, and he did for about the he held out through training camp and through the first four weeks of the season. So he agrees to come back. He agrees to break his lockout. Um, comes back, trains the team the next week in Arizona. Goes out and breaks his fucking leg. You get snapped in that first game back. So not only does he not have the money, he's on the last year of this deal, and he's got to go and fucking prove that he can come back from that injury. It was rough. It was exactly what you didn't want to see happen. Same way here with Dak. Uh, the funniest thing about the Earl Thomas one is I remember him flipping off the entire Seahawks bench, the coaching staff, everybody, as he was carted off. And with good reason. I thought it was hilarious. Not the best conduct but absolutely what they deserved in that moment. So, of course, he went out and signed with the Ravens and whatever else happened, happened. He got paid. So, what happens to Dallas' offense during this whole time without Dak, without, you know, the man, the captain, my captain? Uh, They sputtered and died on impact. They were basically the Hindenburg at that point, and Dak breaking that ankle was lighting the match. (laughs) They learned from all those games played without Prescott in 2020 He was not just incredibly valued, but an essential, let me repeat that, essential piece of that offense. He was the grease that made the wheels turn. They went from a unit who was scoring 32.6 points per game with Dak to 21.1 without him. Dak was on pace before he broke his ankle to break the all-time single-season passing record. Now, obviously, it would have been probably hard to keep that pace up over a 16, 17-game span, but he was still just in a blistering start there and keeping them afloat. So they go from 32.6 points with him to 21.1 without him. Let me tell you, folks, that 21.1, that might be a generous give on that one because I watched some of those games between Andy Dalton, between Ben DiNucci against the – that was a rough Sunday night start with it, Ben DiNucci, my God, with – Garrett fucking Gilbert one night, we let he was starting. I mean, it was a rough go of it, folks. So it proved that without a shadow of a doubt, we needed him. It underscored his importance to this franchise's chances of success. You know, Zeke, Amari, Gallup, CeeDee Lamb, they're all so great. But without Dak Prescott, without the true quarterback behind center to get it all started and make it all – go excuse me there was you know there's nothing you could do it was about as ugly as it could be and you know what else did you think was going to happen every skilled position player statistically suffered from the loss of prescott cd lamb finished with around 600 yards and you know a few touchdowns on the season i thought he was going to easily break a thousand this year he should have easily broken a thousand with deck Justin Jefferson had 1,400 in his rookie season with Kirk Cousins this past year for the Vikings. I think CeeDee Lamb, there's no reason he shouldn't have rivaled him. Like I said, at least broken 1,100 yards easy if you have Dak Prescott behind their quarterback. How did we all get to tie it up in a nice bow and bring it to here now? I think that the Cowboys saw their future without Dak Prescott and went and said, oh, no, oh, no. And I think that's when Jerry very much, when they came back to the drawing board, said, hey, you know what, Dak, Todd France, 4 over 160, sounds good, guy. Let's get this shit done. Because I don't want to do that shit anymore. That 6 and 10 shit that we've limped to and still almost won the division with, I don't want to do that anymore. So, in the words of Jerry Maguire, they showed him the money. So, all around, good for Dak. He gets the financial security he wants. He gets it on his terms. Um, for the most part, he should feel like he won. And the Cowboys have a quarterback. And hopefully we can repeat, not repeat, we cannot repeat this disastrous nightmare from last year. <laughs> Moving on to the NBA here. It was All-Star Night this past weekend. And I say night instead of weekend because we kind of had to condense it into one go. You had the three-point shootout, the slam dunk contest, and the skills contest, skills contest as always. Uh, Steph Curry won the three-point shootout. That would be his second time winning it. Not surprised that dude's a three-point god. Uh, Anthony Simons won the slam dunk contest, and you have Demontis Sabonis winning the skills contest. Not the white European lanky dude I was hoping to do it, Luca. But good for them. It was a good night. As for the game itself, Team LeBron wins against Team Durant one hundred and seventy to one hundred and fifty. I'm going to read you off the rosters of both of the teams real quick. So for Team LeBron, he drafted Giannis, uh, Steph Curry, Luka Doncic, and Nikola Jokic. Those were his starters. You also had Jalen Brown, Paul George, Rudy Gobert, Damian Lillard, Chris Paul, Demontis Sabonis, and Ben Simmons. Now on Team Durant, which team, Kevin Durant was the captain, even though we didn't play because he was injured, uh, you had Bradley Beal, Joel Embiid, Kyrie Irving, Kawhi Leonard, and Jason Tatum. Those five are the starters. Uh, You also had Devin Booker, Zion. You had Anthony Davis, who was hurt, unfortunately. James Harden, Zach Levine, uh, Donovan Mitchell, Julius Randle, and uh, Nikola Vucevic. So, first of all, Kevin Durant, I don't know if you need to know. You don't need to tamper anymore for Kyrie and James Harden because they're already on your team. So there's no need to do this all-star tampering anymore. But I digress. Pretty good rosters, you would say. Sounds pretty nice. Um, Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert of the Utah Jazz are supposedly the last two players picked. They came out and they said they felt disrespected. It became I don't know how it became a whole big deal. I don't know if the media kind of egged them into it with the quote or if they came out and just said it on their own. But they felt disrespected, they said. Uh, LeBron came out and for lack of a, you know, not lack of, LeBron came out and basically said, it's not disrespect. They're just not a well-known franchise. You know, we didn't. Hey, one of his direct quotes was, we didn't use them. You yeah, know, I didn't play them in video games. I didn't use the Jazz. Even when they had John Stockton and Carmelone, we didn't put respect on their name. They just It's the Jazz, you know. They're whack. I love that LeBron literally used the, I don't use them in 2K, so I didn't use them in real life argument for what amounts to a 2K draft blacktop game in a gym. LOL, if you ask me. It's pretty good. I like it. So another thing is the all-star game format. It was the same as last year. Um, for those of you who don't know, I'll read you know directly from the NBA some of the changes that they made. Um, again, this is the same format they implemented last year for the 2020 NBA all-star game. Two NBA all-star teams will compete to win each quarter for their respective beneficiaries. So basically they were picking different charities to play for each quarter, and whoever won the quarter, they would donate money to that um charity each of the first three quarters will begin with a score of zero zero so even at every quarter and each quarter will last 12 minutes the winner of each 12 minute quarter the first second and the third will be the team that scores the most points within that quarter the fourth quarter will be untimed and the teams will play to a final target score meaning that the game will end with a made basket or a made free throw instead of with the clock running out the final target score will be determined by taking the leads, the leading team's total cumulative score through three quarters and adding 24 points, the 24 representing Kobe Bryant's jersey number. Uh, the first team to reach or surpass the final target score will win the NBA All-Star Game. So just a recap, we're playing basically three mini-games in each quarter. They're going to start at 0-0. The last 12 minutes, whoever wins each quarter, you know, they'll donate money to that. Charity of their choice. Um, Fourth quarter is untimed, and they play to a final target score. So I pulled another example of it that I found online on NBA.com when they were explaining it. So, for example, in last year's game, Team Giannis scored 41, 51, and 41 points in the first three quarters for a total cumulative score of 133. Team LeBron scored 53, 30, and 41 and the first three quarters for a cumulative of 124. So through three quarters, the score was Giannis 133, Team LeBron 124. Now, the final target score was set at 157 points because Team Giannis had the most points, so they were taking that leading team's score through the three quarters and adding 24 to it. At the start of the fourth, the scenarios for how each team could win the All-Star game were this. Giannis's team needed 24 points to get to 157. Team LeBron needed 33. Whoever gets to 157 first, you're the winner. Doesn't that sound about as complicated as it could be? I understood doing it last year, um, especially fresh off the Kobe Bryant death. That rocked the NBA to its very core, really. And I understood, you know, the 24 points. We add it. It's all. It didn't really make sense to me then. It still doesn't make sense to me now. The mechanics of it, but I understood the twenty-four and the whole how special that was, the importance of it. I get that. So I love Kobe. I respect Kobe very much. We need to back this up a little bit. I do like the idea of the quarter by quarter thing. You play for charity. Um. I don't. You don't necessarily have to go zero zero with it. Um, You could just, you know, whoever scores the most points in that quarter, you donate to their charity of their choice, and you still play the full game as regular. The untimed fourth quarter, this add the score at the end, it's a little too complicated, and it's a lot to keep up with. Regular people already have a hard enough time watching the All-Star game because there's no defense. It's just an offensive showboating thing. And that's the other thing, you know, come to think of it, why I like the charity donations is because – It's an all-star game. It's it's a very exhibition, showboaty thing. We're all here to have some fun and show off and have a good time and get a little kind of revenge loose against your peers. So I can dig all that. But make it a regular full just four-quarter game again, I, I, I like that better. I think it would be better and go back. So I do like the idea of naming the MVP award the Kobe Bryant award. I like that as well. So keep that. Just back it up a little bit. I also like the idea in the recent years. They've come up with this draft thing. I, you know, a lot of people like East versus West, it's how it should be, blah, blah, but I kind of like it. Like I said before, it has kind of a black top feel. It's like, hey, you, I need you, I need you. Let's get this going. That all being said, Team LeBron, like I said, came out on top against Team Durant, 170 to 150. Uh With a 35-point performance on 16-of-16 shooting, including 3-for-3 from 3-point land, shocker from this guy, Giannis Antetokounmpo has won the NBA All-Star Game MVP, 16-for-16 from the floor with 35 points. Now, he achieved that stat line in just over 19 minutes played. Not only is that a disgustingly efficient score and stat line in about every way, shape, or form, He did it in just 19 minutes, which just is nuts to think about and also adds to the disgustingness of the efficiency. 16 of 16 in 19 minutes, that dude's putting almost a bucket a minute in, just dropping, and no misses. He is the first player in NBA history to shoot 100% on 10-plus attempts in the All-Star game. He also joins Wilt Chamberlain as the only two players in NBA history to go 16 for 16 or better from the field in any game, regular season postseason all-star or otherwise he accomplished and wilt actually accomplished this feat twice in the regular season uh, both in the same regular season in 1996 and 1966 67 18 for 18 and 16 for 16. that's some pretty good company to be in when the only dude to do the only other dude to do what you've done is wilt the stilt that's pretty impressive Giannis. hats off to you I'm round it out here with some little baseball talk before I bring in a guest. So baseball is coming back soon, folks. They are in Arizona for spring training. We are getting it going, and it is live. Um, my beloved, dear Texas Rangers, for all of you that don't know, reside in the state of Texas, which, as of this recording, is now 24 hours removed from removing the mandatory mask mandate. Governor Greg Abbott announced last week he would be rescinding it along with um, allowing businesses to open 100%. Baseball being a business, folks, what do you think the Rangers did? We came out and said opening day, 100% capacity, we are going to be open. They are going to require masks, but 100% capacity when we're one of the bottom five states in percentage of citizens, citizens? percentage of our people vaccinated so far. I think the last time I checked, we were under like 10% vaccinated total. And we want to talk about a hundred percent capacity for a game. I want to get back to sports just like everybody else, folks. And we've slowly been opening up and we've been doing the, you know, the 25%, the 50%, a lot of the, and you know, the NHL still right now is not allowing fans in. Most of the NBA teams are, and are on a very limited basis, but capacity, I don't know why we're doing this. We don't need this. I love the Rangers as much as the next guys probably here in Texas, maybe more than most. I love them dearly to death. But they're going to open for 100% 100 capacity for what, the opening series? Because I guarantee you with the way this team is looking and the way it's looked for several years now, that's the only time they'll be at 100% capacity sellout whether they're actually prepared to be open for it or not. The Rangers guys, I've got to tell you, we've been the masters of social distancing and 25% capacity for a long time now. We've been doing that shit for years. I went to games last year. I tried to go to as many games as I could. Um, Not last year, the year before when they were open in Globe Life Park for the last time before they opened the new stadium. It was about most of the times I had my whole section to myself there wasn't hardly none of us. I don't see the need in a continuing global pandemic to make this type of poor decision. But to be honest with you, the Rangers have always made poor decisions. Our front office kind of blows our ownership. Doesn't want to spend money. We keep trading people for what we call prospects, but then we keep flipping those people when they're not prospects anymore for more prospects. And it's like a never ending shit show of, shipping guys off to go win World Series in Boston or in Chicago or anywhere else where they win World Series except for here. So, Texas Rangers, we need to do better. We have this stadium, and that's great and that's shiny, but we need to do better morally for our people, for our community. And can we do better with this baseball team as well, guys? I'm begging you, please. Now, I'm going to bring in my producer, my good friend, my homie. Sam Gladen, he's going to talk to us a little bit about this exploding barbed wire death match, God bless it, that we talked about last week, and the new, the latest UFC results. Sam, what's up, buddy?
0: Not much, man. Uh, can we just talk about UFC and skip the barbed wire death match? Because that was, oh, that was bad. That
1: was so bad. Oh, guy, you got to tell me, because you can't bring that type of shit to me on this show. <laughs> And then we not talk about the results for better or worse.
0: Fair enough. Okay, so the match was actually pretty sick. It was it was intense and it was very very good. The last ninety seconds of the match were awful. It was it was it was bad. So Kenny Omega uh, pins John Moxley. Match is over. Uh, members of his stable the bullet club come down and they're just beating on john moxley and they end up handcuffing him so he's alone in the ring handcuffed just like body all torn up like he's basically dead on his feet and there was a stipulation added to the match that after 30 minutes the ring explodes whether like the match is over or not the ring explodes and it's like boom so if like the perception is if you're in the ring after the 30 minutes expires,
1: you'll
0: die, basically, is kind of the way it was being sold to us on the pay-per-view. So the match is over. There's like two minutes left until the 30 minutes expire. And we're just watching them wail on this dude with his hands like tied by it in his back. Can't defi- defend himself. And then with like 40 seconds to go, the stable just kind of like vacates the ring. They all just dip and leave this guy just in the ring, handcuffed behind his back, just laying there, just dead to the world. And another guy from the back who had actually been previously feuding with John Moxley, but is, like, an old friend from, like, his indie days, like, they traveled the country together back in like the early 2000s comes right. down and is like trying to save him, trying to wake him up, trying to get him on his feet. And then like, you see the big countdown on the jumbotron behind them, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, And he's like losing his shit. He's freaking out. He's terrified. And so he just covers John's body with his own and is like covering him up. And when the clocks go to zero, the, ropes that hadn't been exploded so one one set of the ropes goes off and that was a a cool expl. it was loud whatever and then sparklers light off from like all four ring posts and that's it so you have like one minor explosion and then like the sparklers go off but the guys in the ring sell it like they just died like they're passed out they're completely unresponsive they're just out and that's how the show goes off the air and it it started this whole big like meme train online where people were making fun of it and then aw started like copywriting people's twitter accounts saying they can't use that kind of footage which let me make this clear it's well within their right to do it because it was a pay-per-view event and if you don't pay for it you don't have any right to that footage like i get that but then like in the post like in the post-pay-per-view like media scrum tony khan who owns the promotion basically just like looked at people who were asking if it was like if it was botched if they fucked up the uh, explosion and just goes well what were you ex- expecting we weren't actually going to like kill anybody and it's like okay no one's asking you to kill anybody but when you say it's an exploding ring match the ring should explode either collapse the ring like they do in wwe every like three months or like do cgi or do something like do something cool with it don't just put sparklers out of the ring post like it was it was ridiculous it was really 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 bad
1: is the equivalent of like one of those little guns and cartoons when all when you pull the trigger, it just has a little pole that pops out with the flag that says bang on it.
0: Yeah, pretty much. Like it, it was definitely the wrestling uh, equivalent of like the 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 bang, absolutely.
1: Well that's fucking lame.
0: Yeah, it was it was incredibly lame. And apparently uh they like retconned a little bit of it during uh this week's AEW, which aired on Wednesday night. I haven't seen that episode uh yet so I don't I don't know that for sure. I can I can come back next week and we can talk about that if anything interesting happened. But it it was definitely bullshit.
1: Jesus. Well yeah. what I saw well I guess there was some bullshit in this one too. In this new UFC card, UFC two fifty nine if I'm to be correct, yes?
0: Yeah, the UFC pay-per-view from last weekend.
1: So I saw that cheap shot in the main event that dude laid down.
0: So it wasn't the main event. It was a co-main event. The main event of 259 was actually Jan Blakowicz versus Israel Adesanya, as Adesanya like, attempted to be the fifth double champion in the history of the UFC, uh, and we can get into that as well. Uh, but the the fight you're talking about is Peter Jan versus Aljamain Sterling for the bantamweight title. Uh, this went four rounds, almost a full four rounds. It was like four rounds and 429 of the fourth round had expired. Aljamain was like on his back, had been waved as like an inactive fighter and was getting ready to be stood back up so that they could like continue the fight from a standing position. And Peter just dropped a knee right on this dude's skull. Uh, it was an immediate disqualification. And because Peter came into the fight as the champion, uh, a belt cannot be retained on a disqualification in the UFC. So Aljamain Sterling is your new bantamweight uh, title holder. After the fight, he was pissed. Like, Aljamain was so angry that he had won the title that way. He did not want to win that title that way. He's been, like, grinding his entire life to get this opportunity, and he feels like it was stolen from him because Peter made a stupid decision, Uh, you know, stolen from him to actually show that he could beat this guy. Uh, so he left the belt, like, laying on the ground in the octagon when he left uh, after the fight. It was it was a really, really great card marred by a really, really stupid decision from a guy who will eventually go into the Hall of Fame in Peter Jan.
1: Was it intentional, do you think? Was it dirty, like, dirty-minded, or was it just, like, Peter? He it moment?
0: He says that he, like, just... Saw that Aljamain was moving and thought maybe that he was, like, mounting a defense and didn't hear the ref, so he dropped a knee, which, to be clear, would be completely legal. If Aljamain is, like, capable of defending himself, you can knee him in the face, you can break his ribs, do whatever you want. As long as you're not like gouging the eyes, raking the eyes, anything like that, that's all legal in the UFC. It's the fact that Aljamain could not like properly defend himself that got him disqualified. So he claims that he thought that Aljamain was like able to defend himself, didn't hear the ref call him an inactive fighter, and like ask for the stand up, which is why he dropped the knee. So, and you know, from my years of watching fights, like Peter has never seemed like the guy to do fucky shit so i do believe him that he that he didn't know what was going on there was a rumor that was like really irresponsibly like spread by the ufc's officiating team and uh commentary team during the event that uh peter's corner was telling him to drop the knee and to just knee him in the skull and like end him uh which has been disproven there's been footage of his corner isolated and translated so like we know nothing like that happened uh so it's it's definitely a weird one because you you would think as champion you know that like being disqualified is only going to lose you your title and when you lose a title you make less money so you wouldn't you would have no incentive to lose the title so it it seems like an honest mistake aljomaine and peter uh, you know, from their social media interactions, seem to be on good terms, and they're they're getting prepped for the rematch, which has been booked, but has not been given an official date yet.
1: Well, thank God, because yeah, I wouldn't. It's a rough thing to not only realize that you took an illegal shot to the face, you ended the fight, you got a little rattled, but not only you're like, man, I don't want this. I don't want this bullshit. Mm-hmm. No, like I did not grind for fucking however long I trained and cut like this. And I have not taken these hits and everything to go along with it. Just to have it go like that. Absolutely not. Absolutely.
0: And like, speaking of that hit, the thing that, really kind of surprised a lot of fans that were watching the fights live is how quickly people in the bantamweight division and other divisions in the UFC started claiming that Aljamain took a dive that like the knee didn't connect fully or didn't connect in the way that he like made it seem like it did or it didn't have as much impact as it seemed like it did and so like he he knew that he was going to get that Peter was going to be disqualified if he you know, couldn't continue the fight. So he just opted not to continue, which again, after taking a fucking bare knee to the temple, well within his right to say, no, I'm not in a position that I can like properly defend myself. I'm done. And then disqualification is disqualification. Fuck you. But the fact that like members of the UFC members of the fighting community have immediately like jumped on this guy's back and be like, you took a dive, you piece of shit. You're not a real champion. You're not a true champion. is insane because you stand across from Peter Yan, and you not only take punches and kicks to the face and the chest, but a bare knee from a guy who is known to have power to just knock people on their ass after almost a full 20 minutes of a fight? Like, no, fuck y'all. I took a knee to the face. I'm the champion. Absolutely not.
1: That's insane. All right, like That's pretty fucking rude, if you ask me. But... That's great. So, but... Tell me about the main card real quick. We have a little bit of time left, but tell me about the main card real quick.
0: Yeah, so there are three. The whole card was insane, but there are three fights that like really, really mattered on this card and that made it what's being considered the best card of the year and possibly the best card in the history of the company. So you had Amanda Nunez, who is one of the uh, double champions uh, currently for the UFC. She's the women's featherweight uh, title holder and women's bantamweight title holder. Uh, So of the five total people in the history of the UFC, which is almost 30 years now to have held two titles, Amanda Nunez is one of those people, and she defended one of her titles on on Saturday night against Megan Anderson, who is like a rising star in the UFC. She's an incredibly talented featherweight fighter. She's uh, huge. She's like six foot, really, really strong, really big, huge reach. And she got tapped in the first round. About two minutes into the first round, Megan gave up her back and just got choked out, tapped out, and that was the end of it. So Amanda Nunez is now undisputedly the queen of the featherweight division. There is no one in the featherweight division that can challenge for a title that has not already been submitted or knocked out by Amanda Nunez. This is the greatest combat sports person of all time. Boxing, MMA, judo, anything where there's, like, contact, she is the best, pound for pound, male, female, I don't care, and it's it's honestly a privilege to watch her just pick people apart. I worry that it is eventually going to become boring to watch her, just because it's it's such a understanding that, like, she's going to destroy people that she was a minus-1250 favorite for this fight. So you had to bet $1,250 to win $100 on Amanda Nunez winning this fight. That is how much Vegas and the fighting community at large just knows that there's no one who can hold a candle to her in this arena. It's insane. She, it, It's crazy, man. It's like watching Ken Shamrock at the start of the company The way she can just walk in there and lay people out like it's nothing.
1: That's a bold statement, my friend. So you're talking through Connor, through Floyd, through anybody we've ever seen do any of these things. She is the best. Pound for
0: pound, she is the best. 100%. She has knocked out and submitted true legends of this sport on her way to being a double champion. Like, understand to be a double champion you first have to win a belt and then defend it until you're 20 and 0 and then you can have the opportunity to go after a second division's belt so amanda Nunez won her belt earned the that t- like earned her title and then has not lost since and then earned her second title and has not lost since then it's been Several years now since she's even looked like she's faced a challenge in the octagon. It's
1: insane. So basically what you're telling me is, is she had to whoop everybody's ass just to earn that belt. Then she had to whoop everybody's ass again to keep that belt. Then they said, go ahead and whoop everybody else's ass to go get another belt. And then do the same thing again to defend it. And now we've come full circle back to here.
0: Yeah. So she currently... Has the longest uh, running win streak of any fighter ever. She's had 21 straight wins in the UFC. Let me see. Uh, the last fight she lost was in 2014.
1: God damn. So she she's now at, what,
0: 2014 to 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 20. She's seven years without losing a fight. <sighs> And it's not like she's not fighting. She had two fights in 2015, three in 2016, one in 2017, two in 18, two in 19, one in 20, and so far one in 21. But also, you got to think in the last, like starting 2019, she had no one in the division that was worthy of her, like getting off her couch and fighting. So the fact that she's realistically fighting once a year right now, defending one belt a year fighting, like, showing up once a year and she's still able to just beat these girls down, like, handily, is insane.
1: Jesus almighty.
0: Yeah. And then we get to move on to the the main event of the card, the number one event, where Israel Adesanya, who is, like, this generation's Connor, but even bigger, uh, was going after the honor of being a two division champion he's currently the i believe bantamweight champion let me double check that so he is currently the middleweight champion of the ufc and he was challenging jan blacowicz for the light heavyweight title which is about a 30 pound difference in divisions so he came in as the lightest uh light heavyweight title challenger I believe in the history of the company at like 206 pounds Jan came into the octagon at like 230 235 and they went all five rounds full time it was a 25 minute uh, championship fight and for a very long time Israel looked like he was going to win There, there's no situation where I thought Jan had the fight by unanimous decision it did end up going his way by unanimous decision unanimous decision, meaning that for all three judges, he won all five rounds. I thought going into the fifth round, Israel and Jan were uh even at two and two. Uh but it's just it's crazy how insanely talented this guy is that he was able to not only take another champion a full twenty five minutes, but do that to a champion who has stopping power, who can and has knocked people out cold within the first couple minutes of a fight. And had almost 25 pounds on him, and that he was able to evade but not only evade but get in in Jan's face and actually fight back and like put pressure on him to have to evade himself and just for one reason or another, the scorecards didn't fall in his favor on this night is insane and I truly believe Israel Adesanya will be a, a two turn champ a, a two belt champion before. He ends up leaving the sport.
1: Excellent. Excellent. All right. Well, that's your daily roundup there, folks. Sam, I appreciate you coming on, buddy. It's always a pleasure Anytime, to have you. Anytime, man. Me. Anytime. Well, folks, that's all I got for you today. Thanks so much for tuning in. Be sure to follow the show on Twitter at Chivo Effect. Leave us a rating and review wherever you get your podcast. It'll really help all of us out. If you like what we're doing, you can support the whole battery of Uplift United Podcasts by subscribing to our Patreon at patreon.com slash Uplift United. It'll allow us to keep making the content that you guys like. Well, that's all I got for you. Until next time, I'll see you.